Well, not only are we at that halfway point in the Gospel according to Mark, having gone through the first eight chapters already and having the final eight to go, we are also at a pivotal point in Mark's Gospel as the focus of what Jesus is showing his disciples is now firmly fixed on what awaits him. And, and he begins to develop their understanding of why he came and what that will look like when it begins to be revealed more and more. So we're going to look at uh, the first eight verses of uh, Mark chapter 9 this morning. And may God give us wisdom as we uh, meditate on these words. And he said to them, Jesus, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were, they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. People have been fascinated for a very long time with being able to look into the future, to see what the future might hold, uh, even so much so that several movies have been made about it, including you know the Back to the Future uh, movie series, uh, about what it would be like to travel to the future. Many movie writers have put that into their scripts where we, we fascinate about what the future will hold. People make a living off that, not just movie writers and actors, but uh, those that would claim to be able to look into the future for you and tell you what your future holds. People are fascinated by that because we would kind of like a bit of a glimpse at times to know what's, what's happening tomorrow. What, am I on a good path? If, as, are the choices that I made, are they going to work out well for me? Or should I be worried about something? Maybe if we would have known ahead of time uh, back in the day and, and not even so long ago that the, that the stock market was going to crash, maybe we would have pulled our money out the day before and then put it back in when it was starting to come back up and suffer really no effect from it. But we just don't know. We, we don't see the future that way. We're, we're curious about it. And people have always been. And we hear stories of people in Scripture that even go to people to try to find out information that we can't see because it isn't known yet. But we have this fascination about the future. And what Jesus is about to show his disciples is a little bit of a glimpse of the future. The prophets talk about 
uh, what's going to happen. Jesus is going to give them a little bit of a a picture, a taste, a, a viewing of what that would be like so that they are ready for it. Uh, we get that throughout Scripture. We, we read the end of the book and we know that the time of the end is going to be a difficult time. Uh, but the time at the very end is a very victorious time for those whose lives are hidden in Jesus Christ. And so we, we do have a glimpse at the future and we're grateful for what we are shown But it is a fascination often. So we're going to look at um, this passage today. And we're just going to kind of walk through a few of the things that are in there that I think uh, are worth meditating on for a while. Uh, The title is uh, Glory Revealed. And when you see, when you hear the story of the transfiguration, truly, that is a glorious moment. Um, But there are different levels of that, different ways in which... Uh, that glory continues to be revealed. Uh, one, it's in the, the, coming, the coming kingdom. Having, having that, that's the way the, the passage starts out. He was going to uh, show them uh, a little bit of the kingdom as it's coming in power. And some of them would be there for that moment. But we've always uh, needed this correct view of the kingdom. And if you, again, follow along throughout all of Scripture, that is... One of the main themes of Scripture is that God has established a kingdom and He is bringing the final state of it about. It seemed as if that existed already in the garden where God and people dwelled together in complete harmony, but we saw so quickly that it didn't last. But God always gives us a renewed vision, a little bit more of a glimpse of of what the kingdom will be like. And you see what it takes to be in the presence of one or to be right with God or how we are to live in the kingdom with one another. So having a correct kingdom perspective is critical. Even Mark, uh, when, he's, when he's opening up this gospel message to us, uh, lets us know the importance of that where he says, uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is this uh, growing sense that we are supposed to understand what God's kingdom is about. Uh, uh, An incorrect view of that would lead us down paths that would confuse us. Uh, May not lead to our best uh, path through this life. And truly, if you followed the wrong path long enough, you would find you're not heading for the right kingdom. So that kingdom perspective is correct. Uh, Jesus gave a little bit more information about that as he spoke uh, earlier in Mark. He said, with, which, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What's it like? What is the kingdom of God like compared to everything else? How would you even compare? What, what parable should we use for it, he says. It's like a grain of mustard seed. We remember reading this, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. How do you compare the kingdom of God as Jesus is about to show his disciples what the kingdom of God coming in power looks like? Jesus had already said, what can we compare it? And he said, if you took a grain of mustard seed, um, and we looked at this, 
the mustard seed of the garden plants is the smallest of all the garden plants for the people of that day. There are smaller seeds, uh, but that one is the smallest of the normal garden plants, and yet when it's fully grown, it becomes larger than any of the other garden plants. The kingdom looks as if it's very insignificant as it starts, and yet the, the ending of it far outweighs any other uh, competitor, if you will. And there are none, to be sure. When Jesus was on trial for his life uh, before Pilate, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He gives us a, a later glimpse. This is still something that will be revealed, but we, we recognize that as what's already been written down for us. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. There's something different about Jesus' kingdom. He said, if it, if it were of this world, we would all take up swords and fight here on earth. Peter thought that was the case, so he struck somebody with his sword and Jesus rebuked him because his kingdom isn't of this world. And we've, we've understood that uh, as you look at Scripture, people are often confused about what the kingdom of God is is about, what it looks like, what it's, what it's based on, what, what will it bring? Uh, the, people of, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, uh, they came out of, of a uh, slavery to a kingdom. They were enslaved in Egypt, in that kingdom. And God was going to bring them out of there, take them from that kingdom, and He was going to build the kingdom for them. But if you remember how painful it is to listen to those stories as they're coming out of slavery to a place that God is going to bless them with, and they say, oh, that we could just go back to Egypt. Their understanding of the kingdom was so far off that they would rather die as slaves in Egypt than to be wandering in the wilderness eating manna and quail and still seeing the, the power of God displayed. Their kingdom perspective was so limited at times, they wished they could just go back to slavery, to a different kingdom. Gideon's understanding of the kingdom was that it was one that you needed to be larger than all the rest if you're going to fight and win. So Gideon, when he's about ready to go up against the enemy, he has, he has a, a troop of 32,000 men and God says, no, that's too much. Which I'm sure took Gideon by surprise because we don't know if they were outnumbered or not, but you would always want the advantage. Shouldn't we have quite a lot more than our enemy? What if we added another 10,000 to our 32? Wouldn't that be better? And God was trying to show that the kingdom that He's ruling over is one that He does amazing things and the way you, would, you and I would typically look at things doesn't fit into His kingdom view. So you remember there as well, He whittles that army of 32,000 down to 300 and they defeat their enemies. Kingdom perspective. There's also um, uh, 
a witness to all of this. And I, I, want, I want to pick this apart a little bit. There's actually, uh, glory is revealed to these witnesses, but it's, it's twofold. So let's, let's look at uh, what the witnesses there are seen. There, there are two sets of, of witnesses. And the first I want to point out are not the disciples, but the witnesses of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain with Jesus as witnesses. That has been something that uh, people wrestle with a little bit. Why them? What does their why, what does their presence there mean? What significance is it that Moses and Elijah is there instead of Gideon or Samson? Why not two other witnesses? Why not two other people? When we look at um, the history of, of the way God appeared and worked with his people, uh, the reason that uh, Moses is there is, is specifically interesting. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord said, it said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. God was going to raise up somebody like Moses and that would be the one that would supersede him. He would come after Moses and he's the one that they would listen to. Moses was the one that would be the spokesperson for God. And Jesus now stands as a, uh, a better representative. Uh, when you look at the book of Hebrews, it's just filled with all of those better comparisons Moses is a better or Jesus is a better representative of Moses, uh, but Moses and Elijah are are representatives together. Moses being the representative of the law, the first five books, the Torah, the the commands given from God through Moses to the people of Israel. Moses represents the law of God. And Elijah represents the prophets of God through whom God spoke and continued to rebuke and encourage and inspire hope and bring a message through the prophets. And Elijah now represents that aspect of the Old Testament. And when you hear Jesus uh, answering the question, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, the second's like it, love your neighbor on, as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. All of the old, and that's the way they would say the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament gives evidence to that. That love God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. That you can find throughout the Old Testament. And so when you have Moses and Elijah, you have representatives of everything that God was saying to the people in the Old Testament. So you have those witnesses that are there. And you also have the disciples and a specific group of disciples. This is Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. 
These are the chosen three that had special privilege, and this, of, of course, being one of them. So Peter, James, and John are there, and they would give witness to that. Uh, but not yet. They're not, they're not going to say anything yet, but they were going to be witnesses. And that's an that's a ongoing, uh, recurring thing throughout the Old Testament. It's brought up again in the New Testament as well. But this idea of, did you catch how many Old Testament witnesses there are? Two. And contemporary witnesses to Jesus? Three. Because any time you're ever going to establish something to be true, you just can't say something to be true by yourself. Somebody has to verify that. Otherwise, you could say something's true. I'd say something's true. Who's right? There has to be some sort of evidence to back it up, and there needs to be enough people that agree on it. So any time a charge is being brought against somebody, the condition was always that it would be on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Even at Jesus' trial, you know why they were having such a hard time convicting Jesus? They couldn't get people to agree. Not even two people could agree on their testimony. They were trying to trap him and they couldn't, they couldn't come up with a consistent story. Not even two or three people could do that. And so now here you have... Uh, the two witnesses from the Old Testament uh, uh, representing all of what God was doing in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And you have the, the three now contemporary witnesses to Jesus, the, the new disciples, the one that would carry on the work, and they're there as witnesses as well. They are the ones that are going to uh, remember that this happened. And they'll remember the significance of it. When, when the death and resurrection of Jesus happens and they're wondering about the, the validity of that, and truly people still wonder about that today. Did it really happen? Did he really die? Did he really rise? Uh, the evidence of people would be critical. And so you have uh, both the past and the present giving witness to what Jesus is about to show them, and that is, uh, as well, let me look at this. This is what it said in Hebrews, and I mentioned it before. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It would go on to say, but even more so, even more so those that set aside Jesus Christ, how much worse the punishment would be if you set aside that evidence. And this is what our disciples are going to give evidence to. Um, and what they're going to witness is the very presence of God. They, they are trying to figure out themselves as uh, Jesus' close disciples who he is. They've, they've made the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that's been promised. He's the one that would come to redeem. He's the Messiah that would save the world. They're growing in their understanding of that, but they haven't still landed on solid ground yet. And so Jesus will give them a glimpse now of who he really is. And for these disciples, 
Not that the other ones wouldn't. But the disciples that Jesus was revealing this to would recognize what's happening here. Uh, you have the very presence of God. And, and it's... Um, you have this uh, revealing uh, where it says, after six days, in Mark 9, 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. To be led up on a high mountain had significance to them. Where did Moses meet with God? But up on the high mountain. God met with Moses at the top of the mountain to give him the law, to speak to Moses, and Moses was the only one allowed to be in that place by God's design, but it was up high on the mountain, and that's where the presence of God met with Moses. Elijah, too. Elijah, in the showdown with the prophets of Baal, went up on Mount Carmel, went up the mountain, and God revealed Himself there by coming down in fire and consuming Elijah's sacrifice and revealing that He is truly the only God and these prophets of Baal are nothing. And Baal himself is nothing. And so Moses led up on the high mountain. Elijah going up on the mountain and God revealing Himself there to both of them. And now you have that same phrase. They went up on the mountain... And Jesus is there with them. In Exodus, uh, you hear that story. The, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. I wonder what it was like for Moses to be uh, back up at the top of the mountain uh, and, the, and the mountain to be covered in a cloud once again and recognizing that he's with God, but his appearance looks so different. What was it that Moses was wanting to see when, when he was getting closer to God? He said, God, show me your glory. And so as Moses is up on the mountain, God says, well, I will oblige you, but only in so much as you can actually handle it. So he tucked him into the cleft of the rock and God passed by and only allowed Moses to see the disappearing of God as he passed by. No one could handle God in his full strength. And yet, here's now Moses once again with James, Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And God is with them. And His glory is revealed. But it's not, it's not that uh, ancient account. This is now Jesus in the flesh and He's transfigured before him in such a way that uh, everything is just brilliantly white. And, 
And God brought one like Moses and made the pronouncement, this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So as they're going up, up the mountain, uh, in that same way here now in comparison to the Old Testament, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came to them, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There is this a very similar experience that's happening so that the people would recognize that Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah, they were not in question. They didn't doubt at all. But now Peter, James, and John would know for sure they are in the presence, the very presence of God. As he comes down on the mountain with smoke, as, as the light is so brilliant, uh, you can't even explain it. And that's the presence that you see here on top of the mountain. There is uh, another reference again in the book of Hebrews. Worth our time. Uh, where the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is, Jesus is, the radiance of the glory and the ex- a glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. As Peter, James, and John are up there, they're, they're recognizing this. The writer of Hebrews draws our attention to it specifically. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God the Father. Jesus now reveals Himself to His disciples so that they know that the the plan that God had established uh, with His people as He uh, made the promise to Abraham, uh, confirmed it with Isaac and Jacob, as Moses began to lead the people and God met with him, as the prophets began to speak for God and Elijah being one of them, the disciples are now understanding that the, the continuing plan of God's kingdom is now standing before them in all of the glory of God. And they have this opportunity to be witness of that. They would be the ones that can say, I saw Him. I saw Him that way. This uh, inner circle of Jesus, they were the privileged ones to be able to see what Jesus was showing them. And they, along with us, um, to us, to them, belongs a kingdom without comparison. There's no comparing what Jesus is revealing to His people to anything else. There are all kinds of kingdoms. We don't always call them kingdoms in our language these days. We call them nations, countries. But you would consider them a kingdom if you were living back in that day. Any, any, any large area that one ruler sat in, in power over, that was the kingdom. We tend to think that we live in the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. 
suppose you could make a pretty good case for that. But the kingdom that we belong to, the, the kingdom that belongs to another ruler, the, the mountain kingdom where we were a part of, none of those kingdoms compare to the kingdom of God because there's something about the, the leader of this kingdom that is significantly different than every other one. Every, you know, there's no kingdom on the face of the earth that's had the same ruler all along? Not one. Can't. Nobody lives that long. The kingdom is always in transition where we find ourselves again today. We are in transition in our kingdom because the way it's set up is that somebody else is going to rule after a while and just like that, what one ruler had put in place, the other one went against and did the opposite. And the next time somebody comes in, they might do the same thing again. I don't like the way you rule the kingdom. I'm going to rule it this way. You know, God has never changed the way He's ruled the kingdom. His plan is the same plan as the beginning. His plan is for Him to dwell with us. And everything from what we saw established in the garden at the beginning of the book to what will be established in the garden and the city at the end of the book, everything in between is God working His people to that place where He will be the only and eternal ruler among them in that kingdom that you cannot compare to because its leader is without comparison. Jesus now stands before His disciples with the witnesses of Moses and Elijah to say that this is, this is the God who rules and reigns over all. He is, Jesus is, the true and final spokesman for the kingdom. Jesus is the true and final spokesman for the kingdom. Now, there are a lot of religions out there in the world today that don't believe that. But that's what it said in, in Hebrews here. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, in these last days, the last ones that there will be, He's spoken to us, not in these recent days. That's not what it's saying. Now God speaks to, so maybe later he'll speak through some, that's not what it says. In these last days, in the last stage of the kingdom here on earth, before it comes in its fullness and its glory, God chose to spoke through Jesus. He's the last spokesman for the kingdom. He determines how it's going to continue to be revealed to the people. And, as it said, He is the very glory of God in the flesh. And so for you and I, as we consider this passage and consider that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are attached to this kingdom now. This is, our, this is our, not only our future, but our presence. It's not something that we're just waiting for. The kingdom isn't something that's still coming. We belong to that kingdom now. We already have, as believers in Jesus Christ, we already have eternal life. We are already a part of that eternal kingdom. And so that would be our focus. And the, the kingdom is different in the, in the respect that uh, the citizens of the kingdom are going to be different than anybody else. 
this kingdom, when you look at the faces and the people and the characteristics of the people in this kingdom, they are varied. I look at you guys and the faces here are quite varied. When, and if you've spent time in other countries, you see that the faces of those people in those kingdoms are very different than ours. The characteristics of the people are, are marked by the kingdom that they're a part of. You can tell, and it was always interesting when, uh, when we were in Lesotho to see how people could uh, differentiate uh, that this person was from uh, Swaziland. I don't know that we would have seen the difference, but they recognized those, those differences. They seemed to be subtle to us. They were very distinct for them. In, in God's kingdom, there is a very distinct uh, difference in the people of the kingdom. You know what that distinction is? What Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John saw was the transfiguration of Jesus into that glorified state. And that is what's going to characterize every citizen of God's eternal kingdom. It will be a uh, not, not in that same way transfigured. We could be uh, in that same way. Maybe it's the way Paul used it. Um, transformed. It's the same word. When Paul said, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. This process of complete metamorphosis. And that's what happened to Jesus up on the mountain. He was standing there with his disciples as Moses and Elijah uh, gave witness to that as well. And his appearance um, was metamorphosizing before them. A totally different appearance. They still recognized him as Jesus, but his appearance was so radically changed that, that they had never seen anything like that before. And that's what we are to be. Changed into the image of our Savior, transformed into His likeness, undergoing this complete metamorphosis. That's what marks you and I. As citizens of the kingdom, that would be the distinguishing mark of you and I. It's, it's been sad for me to see over the years as I've worked with different Christians in different settings and I've worked in different construction types of things. So you get a little bit more rough and tumble kind of guy there. I don't know how I fit into that, but you would get that, just that kind of crude person. You know, those construction people? Not all of them. I don't mean to overcharacterize them. But I knew them. Um, what was always interesting was to see uh, these crude guys and the way they talked and the activities they were a part of. And then somehow, out of the blue, they slipped in when I was at church the other day and my eyes and my jaw dropped. And it's like, did you say you were at church the other day? And I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. How is it? that the drinking, swearing, smoking, crude, crass, whistler, womanizer, the whole thing, how is it that you sat in church this past Sunday? Something about that person hadn't undergone this transformation yet. And to be fair, people would have looked at me that same way at times in my life and said, seriously? 
You go to church? You're the representative for your Savior Jesus Christ? Is it any wonder people don't want anything to do with the church at times? But as citizens of His kingdom, we are to undergo this radical transformation, this radical metamorphosis, this radical transfiguration where our appearance will be so unlike what you would expect that people would recognize that without a doubt. Now that day hasn't fully arrived yet. Uh, That's why we're on this road to uh, sanctification, this, this pathway of being made into His image so that at the, at the end when the trumpet sounded, the twinkling of an eye, that last twinkling, I, I keep thinking about that twinkling. Some of our members uh, experienced a little bit of that twinkling as they passed from this life to the next and recognized that everything that had marked them before, all of their sinfulness, all of that incompleteness is behind them now. But in that twinkling of an eye, we'll finally get to that last stage of being completely transformed. That's what we're waiting for. But don't wait for that day. Don't just sit on the bus until your, until your stop comes and say, well, when I get off, you just wait to see how different I'm going to be. That's not, the, that's not the Christian experience. It's not like, watch, when, when the doors open, you'll see I'll be a changed person. Uh, if you're on that bus ride, uh, the train ride, whatever you want to call it, from here to eternity and you're on the, uh, on the train for salvation, the people already next to you should see and the people watching through the windows as you go by should see that you are radically different already. And it should overwhelm them to the point where they would think, I want that in my life. And so here we are, Jesus revealing what the kingdom was going to be like. He has firmly established it. All of Scripture stands in testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the kingdom and that it's a kingdom that comes with power and glory and complete transformation. If you and I had to finish the race and live the way we are now, in eternity, there's no hurry to get there for me. But what awaits us, that complete transformation, uh, being a part of a kingdom that has, there's not even anything close to its equal, because the ruler of the kingdom is, well, what did it say? Who is a God like our God? And Jesus, that exact imprint of God is the one that leads us, transforms us, redeems us, and renews us, and sanctifies us, and cleanses us, and covers us with His righteousness. And because of that, um, we are to uh, continue to reveal that same glory that we've been given to those around us. We are the, the glory revealed now as, as we are citizens of that kingdom. Let's pray. Sometimes, Father, it's a bit overwhelming to think of your eternal plan that's going on and that uh, what we are a part of, what we will inherit, 
is so far beyond what we actually ever picture in our minds or can truly even understand at this point, given our finite nature. And yet there is built within us, Father, this this expectation that who we are now is not who we're going to be. We are, we are waiting for our transformation yet, and so we, we wait. Uh, but we wait with expectation, we wait with eagerness, and we, we wait with um, the fact that we know that you will transform us. And so, Father, we, we give ourselves to you. We acknowledge our place in your kingdom. We, we acknowledge your place as ruler over that one true Eternal kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And he, he taught them a way to pray that would focus on that kingdom and what it means and, and how that's all going to take place and where God's place in it, where my place is in it. And we, we recognize that. We, we remember that prayer. And so we, we say together as we as we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.